Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Parker, and welcome to a Between Seasons episode of UX Usability Podcast. At the moment, I'm taking a quick break between seasons to recharge, to make connections for the next season, and also to do my job, because I'm an academic at Loughborough University. I've got my teaching, got my research, got my admin, all that amazing stuff we love doing. So just taking a time out to focus on what's important in life before I come back and share all the amazing interviews I'm working on. But between now and when we start again in a few months' time, I've got this amazing show to share with you. It is the Lazy Marketing Podcast. I was a guest the other week and we had a great time talking about marketing, talking about branding, talking about value. It was a lot of fun to be part of and I really hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did making it. So listen, enjoy, take part, and when you're finished, head over to Lazy Marketing Podcast and subscribe. It is a fantastic podcast. You will come away feeling amazing. At the same time, if you want to leave a review or rating on iTunes or whatever platform you get podcast on, it really helps show and helps it grow. I've seen a few of those coming in recently, and I really appreciate all the thanks and support that you as a community are giving. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I can't wait to see you again soon on the next season of the UX Usability Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Debbie Lazy Marketing Hour, extremely live, um, as the people that were here for the last two minutes now realise. Um uh, today, uh, I'm really delighted to be joined by an amazing panel. We're going to have a fantastic discussion about uh, how creative and brand can lower cost of sales. Um, you're going to get uh, a lot of different opinions, I hope, from a lot from a lot of very expert people. Let me introduce them. <clears throat> First of all, uh, over there on my screen is the fantastic Rachel Knott, copywriter extraordinaire. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Al. Hi, everyone. Joining us over there is Simon Hutchings, uh, a creative uh, extraordinaire. Hello, Simon. Good afternoon. How is everyone? We're very well. All the better for having you here. And here um, is Adam Cockrell. I don't know where he's on your screen, but that's where he's on my screen. Adam Cockrell, digital extraordinaire. Hello. 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 And last but by no means least, the man with more guitar than any of us, clearly, uh, (laughs) is Dr. Chris Parker. Um, who is a lecturer um, at uh, Loughborough University uh, and is uh, a very experienced uh, lecturer uh, in the topic of uh, UX, user experience, um, and uh, you're a chartered human factors specialist. I'm not sure I know what any of those four words mean, let alone all four of them together. Give us 30 seconds. What does a chartered human factors specialist concern themselves with? Wow. So that sounds, it's like a chartered accountant. You know, you're an accountant, you want someone who knows what they're talking about. Wow. So if you're a chartered human factors specialist, it's um, being credited by the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. You've basically got to have a lot of experience, prove that you worked at a top level over a mind boggling amount of criteria. I would imagine it's quite interdisciplinary as well. You know, there's lots of different. Oh, yeah. So it's everything about the human body and how we as humans interact with products and services and world around us, the physical side. Then there's the cognitive side. So how people think, how they react to environment, how they react to risk, and how you can design to work with the way that we think to get the best outputs. That's the human factor side, which is really where my main interest and my heart lies. Fantastic. And uh, on a more uh, general level, uh, back into user experience uh, as program leader uh, for the MSCB, MSC in user experience design, uh, I would imagine you've got a lot to say when it comes to the impact of environments, uh, or less so to do with creative and design and brand, but more to do with design and how that impacts on human behaviour. Is that fair to say? Oh, totally. Yeah. So one example of this is some research I published a few years back looking at to what are your motivations to use an app to go shopping? So, you know, if you want to do marketing, you've got to think about working with the motivations people have got. So going to the side here, so I can check my notes, be sure. So the most important thing is giving efficiency and giving convenience. If you've not got the efficiency and convenience, 
then the app is not going to work, no matter how beautiful it is. Now, beyond that, you can go, well, let's get some personalized services around this. People really feel it's good for them. You can get some real good social elements in there, get this interacting, get the word of marketing. But all of that is secondary to efficiency and convenience. Now, of course, being efficient and being convenient is different for every context. So you've got to look at how people are living, how they're working, what kind of life they're spending, and then working with your customers in that way. Amazing. Well, what, this is going to be a fantastic discussion. And I know that because I've been watching it in the uh, in the WhatsApp green room. Let me kick things off by uh, being a contrarian and throwing a, a, a grenade in the room. And I threw this into the WhatsApp group and it definitely definitely triggered and polarized um does emotion matter in business before we even start talking about creative does emotion matter in business and if so why and if not if 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 somebody wants to take a contrary view uh why doesn't emotion matter who wants to go first i'll jump in um i think uh i think emotion does matter i think i think it's because we are we're human beings. Humans are running business, and humans are emotionally led. Um, by, I, as I understand it, we make decisions based on emotion. Uh, so a lot of the business owners that I tend to work with as clients um, demonstrate uh, attachments to um, their business, their their budgets, you know, what they're spending on marketing, what the potential outcome is. Um, they have fears and insecurities around whether or not uh, the marketing is going to be effective, there's going to be a return on investment, whether or not it's going to help them achieve their goals. Um, and a lot of them have put in a significant amount of time, effort and hard work into um, being self-employed and running that business and, and ensuring that they can, you know, um, afford their overheads and, and also provide, you know, for their family and, and for themselves and, and so on. So I think all of that is very emotional. Um, uh, and yeah, so I would say business is is, is generally a, a very emotional environment from that perspective. But don't people, before anybody else jumps in, just just to go contrary, doesn't don't people just spend their money based on uh, what they want and what it costs? I mean, isn't price ultimately the ultimate driver? And Rachel, you're next. Do you want me to respond to that, Al? Well, anyone anyone can respond. Rachel's got a comment to say next. I'll go to her once we. How do people decide what they want though? You know, without you know, if if we didn't have an emotional connection to to, if we weren't driven by desire, <clears throat> then you know, would we want anything? Would we not simply just go right? Okay, I just need to eat some food mm -hmm. now, and I need to sleep now, and I need to you know, and just focus on my basic needs. Um, you know, a, a lot of so desire is at the core of it. Ultimately, it's about so. the nature of desire. Okay. Rachel, I could see you were about to jump in and I jumped all over it. So what were you going to say? That's all right. Well, what I was going to say about, you know, um, the initial question, does uh, emotion come into it? I think the fact that um, one of the main things that we talk about in copywriting is storytelling, brand storytelling. And the reason that storytelling works is that humans have always told stories. They're a vital part of our daily communication and they bring people together because they strike an emotional connection between human beings. When you're invested in a good story, your brain physically responds to it. Um, you get a hit of dopamine to their brain. I'm sure Chris will know a lot more about this. Um, that sparks an emotional reaction that helps you associate that emotion with the person that you're speaking to. And it's the same with brands. So emotions are absolutely crucial in storytelling and story, and that's why they help build stronger relationships with brands, between brands and customers, effectively. Amazing. Anybody else got a thought on that? Yeah, Does emotion I've, I've got a thought on that, just to drop it in. Um, mm -hmm. So I think historically, we, we're all aware that people buy from people. Um, and historically, I think we've probably had more interactions with people when we're buying. However, things are slightly changing now. Um, and I wonder whether... This is a kind of you were throwing a bomb into the room earlier. I'm kind of going to throw a bomb into the room now, to be honest. Maybe we've got more buying experience with our screens than we have with people. That might not be from such a service related side of things. So, from a service related thing, we probably are still um, needing to speak to someone about what they are going to offer us and how they're going to help us and where the value is. But from a product basis, are we? 
more in tune just with the the nature of how we buy things now yeah we're probably buying more and more we're, well we're definitely buying more and more online so does that mean there's a slightly less of an emotional connection with our buying process because effectively we're buying from a screen that's probably a good one for chris actually all right that's good actually I've got two points the first one is um they did some psychological research on this that if you damage the part of the brain that deals with emotions you can operate pretty well as a human, but you can't make decisions. And simple things like, do you want tea or coffee? You know, do you want to turn left or right? Real basic things you find unable to answer. So at a real level, emotions drive everything we do, even if we don't see it as this sort of beautiful storytelling part. And we think about buying online, I think it depends what kind of buying we're talking about. So the Amazons of the world, they spend a lot of time perfecting getting you from the homepage to making that purchase as fast as possible without thinking as much. So in that sense, you're reducing the um, outward emotional side of it. You're not having a great connection. You're just firing on impulses as much as possible. And the faster that goes, the better they are. Um, that's going to work really well for the mass market. But if you're trying to make a high uh, value purchase, let's say, a car, something you're going to be really investing in. You don't want that super fast purchase. You want something where you are doing, like Rachel was saying, building a story, building a narrative, engaging with the brand. So that's really something that has to be developed. At the moment, you look at the way things are done on websites, it's not as good as it could be because you look at your you know, Volvo website, it's not that emotional it's not like great you're not really getting great story evolving you're getting a bit of brand in there but not that much so where things could go in the future is augmented reality virtual reality as these are some of the most powerful storytelling tools we have um give an example of this when you put a virtual reality headset on you can be feeling that the world you're in is real and you can be really drawn into things in the way that just reading a book or seeing a screen wouldn't tell you. So what does it feel like to own a Volvo? What kind of person, what kind of life, how do people see you? These are all things that virtual reality or augmented reality could be influencing you on. So going forward the next 10, 20 years, bringing these additional dimensions into the online selling world to create really strong emotional connections between the seller and the buyer even if it's not a person, could be incredibly, incredibly powerful. Yeah, it's almost like, um, you, you remember you used to get like 3D glasses as part of like, you know, a promotional packet of crisps or something, you know, you, you used to get these kind of little interactive kind of gimmicks that you could use and be like, oh, that's that's a bit different, you know? It's almost yeah. like taking that to another level in terms of technology. I suppose when 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 VR becomes more prevalent and, you know, almost everybody's got a headset, you know, and it's just a case of, oh, this website's compatible with VR, pop the headset on for best experience, you know, and, and then you'll you'll have a more interactive experience with that website. Hmm. You don't see a huge amount with, I mean, I, I remember kind of like augmented marketing, if that's even the right term, um, was around quite a few years ago, but you had to, you had to have the right app to scan effectively an advert in the press, which would then come to life with a video or something similar. Mm -hmm. So that was it, it's kind of basic level, I guess. You don't, I don't tend to come across that quite so much now. No. Do you think that kind of more virtual experiences way overlap that now? I think it's a combination of things. So the tools to do it are still being developed. So Adobe is on the cusp of releasing Adobe Aero which is going to be like, you've got Photoshop. Everyone's got Photoshop. You can just use it to create wonderful pictures and put you know, things in the background, whatever you like. Aero's been on beta for the last five years. That'll be released soon, and that will be the tool everyone can just use. The technology's already in your phones, so it's just it's linking these things up. When that will be? Two or three years, hopefully. The biggest barrier, though, at the moment is... What people are using AR and things for at the moment is small gimmicks. Like you know, IKEA, see this in your home, and you end up with a little cup of something on your desk, which is interesting, but 
not engaging. So the idea about bringing in story elements, narrative about you see, like for example, you see, um, you want to see a sofa in your room. So rather than just a sofa, go right, there's a little box and you approach the box. As you approach, it grows larger. And then there's a little button just flashing saying, touch me. So you touch that and the sides fall down and out pops this little sofa and it starts to grow and then move to the part of your room that you want to see it in. Then on there appears people and they're having a movie night. I can go on. That, that kind of thing. It's not that difficult to do. You know, it's a bit of work, but not that much. That would be so much better than what's currently done. So the narratives are missing. Um, the human factors design of it is really not where it should be. Um, this is getting really, really geeky away from marketing. I'll get back onto the marketing and emotion things really quickly. But things like um, when you're looking at a screen, you've got like a 20% um, twenty percent, twenty degree cone of vision that you can look through. That's where your focus is. And then you've got 35 degrees either side of that. That's where your perception is. Then everything back there, which you can't see, that's surprise. So where you put things in the environment depends where you can actually look at. And then you've got something here in front of you that you're looking at and paying attention on. And then you hear a beep over here. You look, attention flicks. Now your cones changed and etc. Basic human factors. And by chaining focuses and giving signals and bits you can move people through an environment and get them to really feel engaged that's missing i'm not seeing that happening in many if any virtual environments so the design side of it is a bit underwhelming so i think when people get around to this start bringing these bits in all those possibilities for extreme motion can really become possible. But we're going to, need to get back onto the marketing, which is the main topic for today. Um, so my last thing on emotion and marketing for now is um, anyone who thinks that emotion is not important in business should go ahead, launch company, and put swastikas everywhere and see what the response is. <laughs> I agree. I've actually, yeah. I've actually used that tactic uh when people don't appreciate why values matter um people are um i think in business we're so revenue focused that it's easy to and, and i don't blame anybody for doing it it's easy to discount things that aren't immediately quantifiable in revenue but simon i know you've done a lot of thinking around and work around the roi of design you know, you've been, you've been a, a, a creative for 23 years, 22 yeah. years. Uh, it doesn't annoy me at yeah. all that you've still got your hair. Uh, and I don't. Um, obviously, <laughs> you weren't working hard. Obviously, you weren't working hard enough. That's all I, that's all I can attribute it to. Um, but you, you've thought about this a lot. You know, everyone that's here today, one of the key things I think they're going to want to go uh, go away with. And by the way, attendees, if this isn't one of the things you want to go away with, put it in and tell us. But basically... I think they want to know uh, how far um, does creative go in playing a role in ROI? How far can they go? How can they observe and measure? What can they know? Over to you, Sam. Massively is like the, the short short answer to it. Um, you know, you've got a, one of the, kind of one of the examples I could use is that you know there's a lot of pressure on businesses around marketing in general to reduce their cost per click to make sure their data is spot on to um, make sure their adverts in the most optimal position of a publication um, but at, at the crux of it all if their brand isn't targeted and if their advertising isn't on par and not targeted and hitting those emotional levels it doesn't matter how much they're paying per click it doesn't matter if they're in an optimal position in a publication because it's just not going to work so they could be paying an absolute fortune on their marketing, but because they haven't done any of the work on the, the foundation level of their brand, branding, creative identity, all of that work strategy, they're just not going to connect with the people they're, they're trying to connect to. So it, it's just absolutely massive. And it's got to be done from the fundamental, you know, right from the, the very foundations as a, as a fundamental part of your business. If, if you're, 
identity and all of your creative and your messaging and your your narrative and the story and all those things we're all used to talking about just doesn't fit then you're just spending money that's not going to get you anywhere and, and not going to get you any results i just want to trace oh sorry i was just going to add something rachel just very quickly in a world where emotion therefore drives purchasing decisions and, and this is for Rachel and for Simon, and Rachel, you've probably got something else to say as well, But so you can go first. But in a world where purchasing decisions clearly are affected by emotions, um, and the only way we have of communicating emotion is how things look and the words we use, why isn't it more obvious that this, why are we even having this discussion? Why isn't it more obvious that the role that words and, I mean, we accept that words play a massive role in purchasing decisions, why are we even? Why is it even not still a thing that people could consider that design doesn't matter, creative doesn't matter? I'll, I'll leave that out there, Rachel. You were going to say something, and it, yet again, well, I jumped in front of you. That's okay. Don't worry. I mean, and this kind of links back to what Simon was saying as well about people buying online. So I think one of the things that people are missing is if you look back to when you know people directly bought from people, why did they keep going back to that same person? because they knew what to expect. They knew the value that they were getting. They knew the quality that they were getting. And they had a personal emotional connection with that person. So I think, and, and, and that personal connection comes from their experience interacting with that person. And what we need to recreate through, um, you know, through copywriting, through great brand design is effectively make that brand feel like a human being that they're interacting with so they can develop a direct relationship with them. Um, and that comes through, that comes through um, the brand experiences. So don't do, um, sorry, do, don't tell effectively. So you don't want to force emotion. You want to bring emotion um, out, you know, kind of evoke emotion in your prospects and your clients by their experiences with you, just like a normal human to human relationship would be developed. So don't tell your customers you care about them, show them. Um, that kind of makes it sound like I'm doing myself out of a job. But actually, this is where tone of voice is really, really important because it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it matters to some degree what you say, but more so how you say it. It reminds me, I yeah. saw a study about how uh, the words you speak only count for something like 20% of the communication, but your body language counts for something like 70% of the communication. So you could be speaking really nicely. Sorry, go ahead, Bridget. No, I, I was just going to say, you know, you're, and of course, when with written text as a copywriter, one of the challenges is how do you recreate that um, body language and that tone in the written words? Um, I've got an example here. It's Blue Peter. Here's one I made earlier. Um, these are two email lines from an email. They say the same thing in two entirely different ways. And I think one makes tells the customer that we care about them, and the other one makes the customer feel like we care, they're cared about. So the first one is. We care about our customers and value your feedback. We'd love for you to head over to our site and leave a review so that we can ensure we continue to deliver exceptional service to all our customers. There's that one that's quite painful to read. So the other one is, you seem to be enjoying our curly hair range. We're dying to hear your thoughts. If you can spare a few minutes in between rocking awesome waves, hit reply and let us know what you think. In the meantime, here's a new serum we've created exclusively for all you curly queens. So one creates an experience. It's personal. It's fun. It feels like it's been written for that client. It makes them feel special. And the other just tells them. So I think one of the things that we um, kind of miss when we're talking about emotion is that emotion isn't forced. It co emotion comes through experience with an interaction with a brand. I think there's a level of expansion on that as well, though, um, and the level of expansion into consistent use of, of that language. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can you can work you can work really closely and I can work really closely with uh, with customers um, or to understand who they are as a business and try to reflect that across their creative and their written words. But then if they've got multiple people in the business as well, it's being able to uh, um, help them to get that across in exactly the same manner so that 
you know, they're not reading one thing and then they're talking to someone else and they're not getting the right vibe off of it because that, you know, they're, they're sold into something from their first experience of, of a brand. They speak to someone and it, they're just, it's just not the same. And then you've lost them or there's too many questions being raised as to, well, we were pretty set on going with these guys beforehand, but oh, now I've got my doubts. Yeah. that And that's about consistency, isn't it? Brand consistency across the whole of your uh, the whole brand experience you oh, know and that yeah. Uh, yeah like you know you and the visuals come into that as well you know the the um aesthetics that side of things it's not just the tone of voice if you're if your aesthetics say you're one type of person then your tone of voice says you're completely different that's confusing and inconsistent and jarring for the customer you know like they go back to the same person because they trust and know that person they're going to keep coming back to the same brand because they they know what to expect and they trust and like the brand. So establish and that comes from brand personality as well, establishing that brand personality right from the start. And I know both you and I both do this, Simon. Um, you know, who are they? You know, one of the questions I always ask my clients is if your brand was a person, what would they be like? You know, sometimes I even ask them, can you tell me a celebrity that your brand is like, you know, so I can visualize who it is that we're that's talking um we talk a lot about the importance of having a really clear target avatar you know so you know them inside out but you also need to know who your brand is inside out how do they talk how do they react to things how do they respond um what do they look and sound like chris um, just just uh, kind of cropped crop to mind off the back of that do you find or have you found that through user experience there's a different journey that someone will go to through their user experience of something, depending on whether they're used to um, used to being receptive to a more corporate way of speak, seeing marketing versus a more kind of relaxed, quirky way of seeing marketing and the languages that are used. Short answer, it's not something I've looked into, um, but it does sound really interesting. Um, I would expect there to be a range of reactions, just like you've got a range of users and you haven't got one kind of customer and that's it. It's always a range. So it would make sense that there are some people that respond really well to one or another. And of course, I'm sure Rachel would agree that you got to know when to use it. So, you know, Buckingham Palace probably wouldn't quite do as well with the Curly Queens. Um, <laughs> although maybe we we see going forward. Yeah. Indeed. I, I was going to uh, just ask a question around emotion and risk, because what you were talking about, Rachel, made me realise that loyalty is a result of emotion, not of logic. When, in marketing, loyalty is really important. We want, to, we want to tap into loyalty. We want people to be loyal because then the cost of acquisition goes down over time. If, if, if there's high loyalty, uh, cost of acquisition goes down. So... If that's true, what's the role that um, creative uh, and, and everything else, but certainly on the creative element, and I would include words and visuals there, what's the role that creative plays in not just getting to people through that emotional decision-making piece, but through that and into lowering of risk and loyalty, which to me are actually quite logical. So what's, the reason why I'm asking this question is, does this mean that emotion plays more of a role in logic than we accept and understand? You know, we think we make decisions logically, but emotion is under, underpinning it, really. Because if the risk is high, if the emotional relationship isn't there, it doesn't matter that it's the cheapest, right? Mm. I'm, just, I'm just throwing that out because that just struck me as being a really, you know, interesting relationship between emotion and risk. Whereas I always normally attributed logic to lowering risk. But now my mind is changing. I think it's a, is it about acknowledgement of of that of those fears? Um, I mean, that's certainly from a copywriting point of view. One of the things that I'd always look into is what are the objections? You know, what are the fears around it? Because if you can get to the root of somebody's fears, then you can reassure them that you're going to attend to those things. So I think it's an acknowledgement of those things and a recognition of those things. Cause I think the, the risk is, is fueled by the an emotion of fear. So if you can then tap into that fear and, and kind of put their fears to rest, 
through the words that you use or not just, you know, do, don't tell. Um, then I think that that's, you know, certainly from a words perspective anyway. Simon, you might have something more to add from a design perspective about that. No, I think I think that's that's pretty much spot on. I think people are less interested in the process and more interested in the end result. So, like from our perspective, visually, we especially from an imagery perspective, we're always trying to concentrate on what the end result is. Because obviously, you know, you don't want to be promoting an accountant with someone looking like they're utterly stressed because the whole idea of accountant is they're meant to take stress away from you. You're meant to be really chilled because they've got it all in hand. So, you know, trying to avoid you, obviously you've got to, you've got to kind of build in the fact that there is a problem that there you are able to resolve. So you've got to touch on that, but I think the resolution and how, how you add value it through that resolution is the thing to concentrate on. I think that speaks very much to the like you're talking about the end result, the, the resolution. You know, it's 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 features and benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about this from a design perspective. Chris was also touching on it from a perspective of you know how we could use um, modern technology to to kind of elaborate on this and how we could create experience which you know takes you on a journey that shows you you know what the actual benefits and features are of, of a product um, before you can actually use it. How currently you know perhaps web tech and and you know websites and so on just give you quite a 2d perspective is very difficult very kind of small perspective of things it's very difficult to do that so we can we can expand that through rather than focusing on some stock photos of people being stressed out about accountancy we can show them images of people being relaxed and happy as a result and actually show the end result or we can use that technology to show people how that you know that sofa is actually being used and the happy family that's on it so we can think about the experience that they actually have as the end result and i think that even in the current technology that we have we're not utilizing that to its limitations in order to promote that experience and that end result that can be had from a from a product or service it's also a lot of what we're talking about it's very um visual and sort of interface led which totally has its place not trying to put it down a lot of what we do within ux design is think about the whole journey so a really common tool is start with a ux vision statement before you and try and work out what is the right problem to solve rather than just jumping through through to how it looks so a UX vision statement could be well who is the person you know that we actually want to connect to it's not everyone it's this group so who is that group what are they trying to achieve in their life why are they trying to achieve it and why can they not seem to do it what's the barrier in the way once you understand that then you can start to go right what is the narrative we're going to try and do to get these people and how can we develop things that they're going to love so talking about sort of sofas a lot well what people might want is a really great family movie experience. You know, we always think of, oh, I'm going to sit down on the sofa with family and watch things, but we can't fit in the sofa, we need a bigger sofa. Well, actually, no, you need a better family movie experience. So what is that? That's going to be, well, we're all in the same room. We're going to be um, watching it and be enjoying it. We're going to be comfortable. And we're going to talk about it afterwards. Right, how do you make that happen? And maybe a bigger sofa isn't even what you need. Maybe what you need is individual chairs and popcorn machines and all these things. And you can spend that into creative directions. So making things look nicer, um, that's really important. See, copy is super important. I I think everyone doing copy editing is like a wizard and I'm super jealous I can't do it. Um, but it's also good to remember that we've got to connect with those unmet desires more than anything. And it's not just by saying words that, oh, we do it. Actually, no, let's let's start with this. Let's focus on really addressing those unmet desires. And then everything else, all these skills can do their job properly. I think that's really important that we've talked about this before as, as a group, you know, about helping educate um, clients and business owners on what they actually need in order to create a certain experience rather than what they think they need. Uh, a lot of the time, um, I think business owners think they need a website. <laughs> 
you know, but it might actually be that they need a really good social campaign, or it might be that they need some good blog post copy, or or, or it might be that they need to go back to strategy and branding first, you know, and then figure out right what's the best strategy because it ultimately is about who we're connecting with and how we're connecting with them and what kind of experience we're providing rather than just you need this tool or this marketing channel. I think some some of that sometimes, I mean, from a a business that's in its infancy and maybe hasn't got finances, um, you know, we're, we're talking here about being very targeted and understanding the real, like the real reasons and like, like Chris just said, what they want to achieve. It's a much bigger experience of, uh, of what they're not to achieve rather than just a bigger sofa. Um, and I think, you know, we, in the last podcast, we spoke about um, building out your target, you know, and defining your target market and your avatars and being able to speak to those, as Chris just kind of said. And for smaller businesses, I think they try to be everything to everyone and possibly that's where it all slips up from the very beginning. Um, and this is tapping into what you kind of, the question you put into this group probably about 20 minutes ago, Al, about why are people not just kind of tuning into the fact that, you know, we we need to be doing this in, the, in a certain way. But it's probably because we just want to be successful at business quickly. We want to be everything to everyone. So we think that a logo or a an identity or some copy written in any old way will probably cover everyone and hopefully they'll come to me well we we absolutely know that that's not really the way to be looking at it we want need to be concentrating on exactly who we want to be you know our our champagne clients and then cascading from that will be other people that we will be able to do business with as well. And it's being able to connect with those like that rather than thinking, hey, yeah, we, we can do, we can help everyone out with everything and it'll all be good. Well, it also speaks to strategy, of course. And, and as Al, you often talk about focusing on, you know, one avatar initially rather than, you know, all of them at once and or every service vertical at once, you know, and making good on that first. So attracting the right type of client at this stage of the business for the for the most appropriate service and working hard on that. Other other inquiries will come in, they will filter in, but um, get that right and then, you know, move into the next avatar or service area. I, I... <clears throat> Sorry, I was just giving everyone else a chance to jump in if that case anyone wanted to. I, I think this is fascinating to me because I've thought about this stuff for a long time. Um, my mind has been blown in a few different key ways. I, I think I, I always segment emotion and logic, and I'm not going to do that anymore because actually I don't think they're separate. Mm. I segment them because that's what I was taught. And I think that creative is a great example of this. Um, logically, if I'm running a business, you know, and Adam, you just pointed this, logically, if I'm running a business, of course I have to care about revenue because the business doesn't work without revenue. But the problem is uh, we people can't, and even, even me as a, as a relatively new business owner, uh, I can only see what's in front of me. And because there's no lines drawn on anything, anywhere, connecting emotion to revenue, that's why the world is undergoing the revolution it's undergoing now. It's only with the advent I would say, of of the internet, really, that we've got to a point where we have such scale. Where, because pre-internet, the way we bought was radically different. We didn't, it, it wasn't nearly as competitive a market. Right now, I can buy probably anything from any country on the planet. 50 years ago, we have even nearly the choices. You went down your local shopping bit, and if it wasn't there, you'd have to get on a bus and go somewhere else to buy it or buy it on mail order. And so now we're in this spoilt for choice universe. So therefore, of course, the nuance of emotion is flushing through, which is why Simon Sinek had his moment in the sun 11 years ago, reminding us that it was all about why. Um, for any small business owner out there, um, they're probably terrified if they've been listening to this because they spent 25 quid on a logo and, and they do the writing themselves and they built their own website and Wix for 50 quid. We understand why it's, it's got to be done sometimes in a shortened fashion, but you've got to get back to what's going to impact on the customer. And clearly, emotion and logic are as uncomfortable bedfellows as they may be. I actually think they're unified. I, I'm, I'm now questioning whether there's a difference in the consumer's mind. I think the decisions made, someone posted 
a comment, Chris. I don't know if you saw it in the Q and A. Uh, it was addressed to you, and it said, you, you know, the theory about um, uh, you were pointing out about this part of the brain affecting emotion and deci decision making. Yeah. And they said, try that theory out by having a non-decision making day. Uh, can you imagine such a thing for a business? No, nobody decide to work with me for the next 24 hours or whether decide for better or for worse. It's, it's anathema to us, isn't it? Mm. I'm trying to find the Q&A chat button right now. And, oh, um, there is a Q&A. Uh, I don't know what it's called. There it it's is. Called right. Q&A, oddly. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand what that question's... Well, the question is, is, is there a difference between emotion and logic? From, from a, Okay, so it reminds me of these experiments that were done in the, I think it was the 90s, which um, some Japanese scientists took a ATM machine, which is really boring technology, and messed around with the buttons. So you had standard layout, you had an ugly layout, and you had a beautiful layout. And they found that when people voted the layout to be more beautiful, they also said it was easier to use. Bear in mind that the software and everything was the same. It was just the buttons that were different. And this other scientist in Israel thought, oh, that's Japan being stupid. That's just Japan being Japan. So let's rerun it and be really rigorous. So he um, re rerun it in Israel and found really strong results. Same in that when you make something look beautiful, you think it is easier to use. So the beauty is a wow. function. And that kind of reminds me of um, designing the Nike logo. You know, everyone thinks of the Nike, the Nike logo as this amazing squish tick. And it's kind of reminds me of what Rachel was saying earlier. When they developed the Nike logo, it, no one liked it. It wasn't very good. But then Nike put it on their shoes that were very good. And people put them on and went, oh, these shoes are great. I'm seeing they're great. Therefore, that logo is great. And it, and it earned this mythical status. Um, so you, nobody can just go and design something that good. It really is hard earned. Association is so powerful, isn't it? In in this respect, in this context, context, it's your, but it's it's the association of you know that logo with the experience or the emotional connection to the product or service. Mm. I was trying to think whilst you guys are talking of right, we're, we're all saying emotion is important, right? When is emotion not important? And I was trying to think, well, what if I, I want to go and buy a tool for the weekend? Well, that's pretty unemotional. I'm going to cut down some trees in my garden. Right? That's pretty functional. But I'm thinking, I'm in BQ looking at a range of saws. And I'm imagining me in the garden and I'm imagining me maybe five years time. Who is that person I'm going to be? And, everything. and straight away, I'm in emotional territory. And maybe I'm buying this really nice lumberjack style saw, saw the nice girthy wooden handle because I'm a big, tough lumberjack guy. Complete rubbish. Any of the saws will do the job. But I'm imagining an emotion is driving the decision. I... I can't think of something where emotion. So I, I can. When I'm buying, when I'm imagining buying for myself and enriching my life and creating my world, every decision I'm making is emotional. Um, for those who are watching live, I can see the guitars behind me. Now, if I was making guitars for a living and shipping them off to people, I'm not sure I'd be choosing the vintage cloth-covered wire, which I love, I would be choosing the cheap wire to do the same job, and I can save some money. So in that kind of manufacturing context of getting something out the door, no one's going to see it, it's just there. I don't think emotion would be important, but everything in the personal world is. Can what I, do I, I just think? Do, can no, I just jump it, in on that? Sorry, Adam, sorry, I'm, I'm going to... But then I would come along and listening to the marketplace, and they're all whinging about how cheap your strings are, I would tap into the emotion of that and launch a, a, a vintage cloth string-only guitar competitor. And therefore, if I talked about that and flushed that through with emotion, through story and through messaging, even through design, I could completely uh, push the design into a vintage kind of look. I would then totally steal the business, probably, possibly, at which point you'd then have to raise your game. Right, Adam, I just wanted to say that. 
because that's where competition comes from. I don't want to interrupt Chris's solo. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I was thinking about um, it's all the wiring kind of inside there you can't see. So things on the outside, that's one thing. It's things that you would never get to see on the inside, that hidden part. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. But the customer, I have a question. I think sorry, Adam, I... to get, Adam was next. Oh, no, go on, Rachel. You can jump in. I mean, sorry, I, I, I jump in in front of all of you, so it seems yeah. churlish of me to penalise anybody else. So sorry, My question's Adam. about saxophones, so I'm uh, I'm happy to wait, Adam, if you need to go next. I was just, okay, look, I was just going to say, since you've offered me to jump in, I was just going to say, what about fear? You know, fear is a very strong emotion, very powerful emotion, and I generally try not to make fear-based decisions. You know, if I'm in a state of fear around something, I tend to try and step back and, you know, evaluate that fear. Is that fear trying to protect me? Am I, um, what am I worried about? Worried about a particular outcome? Is that very strong fear? Is it driving my decision process? Am I, am I therefore dropping all logic in, in the process of making that decision? It, I find it can be overriding for myself for clients you know I, I can take people through a process and we can get to a logical conclusion of you know what do you need this is our strategy to achieve that this is the budget that it would take to achieve that this is you know in line with your requirements and what you can afford to spend but then if fear can creep in it can almost create an, an illogical response of you know I'm, I'm i'm afraid of a particular imaginary outcome which you know may or may not happen and I'm, i've overthought it and i've let fear determine my decision making so in that respect i would have thought that it would make sense to go maybe i shouldn't be making this decision from a place of heightened emotion but should perhaps step back and see whether or not that emotion is being triggered in this moment and i can actually look at it from a more logical perspective and, and come back to it Got everyone thinking. Yeah, no, it has. It's brought, it's brought the word fear into play. Um, I think I think there's a very interesting correlation. There has to be. I'm not a scientist. So I'm not going to go and actually measure it, but I'm going to I'm going to claim there's a correlation between, uh, um, you know, what we were talking about earlier, logic and emotion and fear. That that triumvirate. I know that uh, one of my old coaches uh, talks about this this trio a lot: fear, emotion, and logic as driving the purchase. Um, and I, I, Chris, is there any, is there any data on fear in, in UX? I mean, he's looking you at You know what? Now, I can see. <laughs> Give me a second and come back to that. All right, okay. The thing. I, I think in my experience, I've made, I've, I've regretted decisions at times made out of fear. You know, I was too afraid to do that. I, I knew the right decision. Instinct as well is another thing, you know, being able to tap into your own gut instinct on something um, or overriding that instinct because I'm afraid of a particular outcome. You know, it's a personal challenge to find a balance with that, um, reactively making a decision, you know, so being in reaction and therefore being in a triggered state of heightened emotion, heightened emotion, perhaps being the important aspect and that perhaps the emotion isn't necessarily, the, you know, a bad thing to, to make the decision from, but to know when you're in a state of heightened emotion and reaction and not make a decision from that place, but to, to come back to it when you're in a calmer place and see, okay, is, is that emotion driving this decision, you know, valid and logical and does it make sense and being able to have clarity around that? So, yeah, it's um, obviously trust and value are all bi you know, bidirectional. We have positive and we have negative. And we say, oh, I trust something. It's the sum of positives minus the negatives. And if the equation in your mind comes out positive, then the most positive one's most likely going to win. And... I think the fear thing is really interesting. When people have a genuine fear of something, like I'm worried my identity will be stolen. I'm worried this thing might not arrive. I'm worried my friends won't think I'm the most beautiful person in the room. You know, or I'm worried that when I walk into the place, I'm going to look the same as everyone else. Whatever that worry and fear is, that's always going to have a impact on are we going to make a purchase? You know, I'm, I'm getting my chimney redone. I'm worried that the lame is going to look at me and think, what an ugly chimney. Well, no. So yeah, fear is very negative. Well, it does, the question you brought up, Adam, about fear makes me think about, is there a time when fear is useful? Mm. And you can actually say, actually, you know, I want people to, I want to give the impression that it's negative. And I think you can. 
but I think it's very specific cases. So you've got things like Tough Mudder, um, the whole obstacle courses. Um, if you marketed that as you're going to have a lovely walk in the park and you're going to complete it and feel nice and refreshed, no one would do it. Um, oh. Whereas if you go, yeah. you are not going to complete this, there's a chance that you might die. And yeah. on the course, there's a severe chance of personal injury. Do not do this unless you are okay with personal injury. You're trying to ramp up the fears. People go, ooh, this sounds like fun. Mm. Even though the reality is it's it's super safe. Mm. And Al, you have flip FOMO, don't you? You know, so you... Yeah, you, that's... You know, yeah, that fear of missing out, isn't it? That's, that's something that you teach about, you know, actually t- taking fear and, and flipping it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we specifically want to, well, we want to, uh, through the marketing strategic approach we use, we want to move FOMO to the customer. At the moment, most business owners watching us have a fear of missing out on revenue, but that's counterproductive because what it does is it creates sales pressure and nothing nothing turns a prospective customer off than sales pressure, quickly sales pressure. Sometimes, ah. it, sometimes that's wrong. Ah, sometimes. Well, there's a... There's bound to be an exception to the rule, but as a rule, as a rule, the harder someone tries to sell at me, you know, I if I'm not ready to buy, I tend to move away. Booking.com. Um, booking.com. Yeah. So you you go, you're going to New York. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it says world. there's only two left, doesn't it? Yeah. So oh, yeah. two looks. Five people looking at this room right now. Um, there are 10 purchases earlier. Um you know, you've got this long for this offer. They put so much time pressure on you to the point where I've made a purchase. And when I've hit buy, my heart rate's been pumping. Literally, I can feel my breath has gone <laughs> do you, really do you fast. But then you check again. And it's, scarcity, though. Yeah. I mean, that's so, that's because you're worried it's going to run out. You're going to, you, you, you perceive there's only two left. Mm. It's a bit like an auction or anything like that. I think, like with Tough Mudder, there are definitely instances where pressure is going to work. And they've probably also done the maths, Chris. They've probably worked out that there's a lot of time wasters who are never going to buy. So if we put a bit of time pressure on it, we'll force the people over the line who are going to go over the line, then everyone else is going to be... Mm. You think we're seeing too much of that now, though? Sorry, Simon. (laughs) It's the follow-up apology that that gets you, doesn't it? Go on, Simon. I'm not Simon. I was saying, do do we think that we're seeing too much of that type of marketing? Because like nearly every, like for every Facebook ad that comes onto, or Facebook obviously is a Facebook ad, um, but we see this massively long, elongated web page. You have one day and 19 minutes and it's ticking you down, ticking you down, ticking you down. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of buying into some of it and you're thinking, oh, I've got a day. And, you know, I think loads of people are using this scarcity tactic now. Um, that, uh, other than the booking.com principle where it's everywhere um, you know and they're hitting you from all angles with it do you, do you think we're kind of wising up to it a little bit now no okay <laughs> well no. What, what, my, I kind of what I was going to say links into this so I think that the reason that booking.com can get away with doing that is because we know, like, and trust booking.com. They've established their relationship with us already. If there's just some random, you know, site that I come across and I want to book on, they start putting loads of time pressure on me. I'll just go like, well, no, I don't know you. Who are you to, you know, I think there's a, I think that's only, you can only use that kind of marketing when you have, when you've earned the right to, I don't know, maybe, maybe you disagree, Chris, what do you think? I've got, I just, sorry, very quickly. I, I, I get done by uh, discounts, <clears throat> time discounts, particularly on like video games. I'll get an email come through and it'll say uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is now 80% off until the 15th of, of September. And I'm like, oh, uh, yes, it's only a tenner. I'm going to miss mm-hmm. out, you know, and that that really gets me every time. Mm-hmm. Chris, yeah. you look like you're going to say something. Go on. Yeah, so Rachel, I, I do agree that, you know, if everyone does it, it's not unique and it will become useless. And you know, Adam, I agree that when things are lower value, you know, everyone's, how much is £10 worth? That's to- totally personal. But when you perceive it as low value, then you're going to jump for these offers faster than if it's Mercedes. Um, it does make me think that I'm worried about the future 
and AI, what that can bring to the game. Because at the moment, you've got things like um, Airbnb, where you log on for the first time and you've logged on with Facebook. Airbnb goes to your Facebook, can scrape the data, predict where you want to go, and the first five uh, cities it shows you are its top five predictions. And it's, it's right something like 80% of the time. Wow. So you've logged in and the first thing you see is where you want to go on holiday straight away. And that's using some pretty basic um, AIs, nothing magic on there. So go forward 10, 20 years. Now we all visit the same website, but we know that while well, they've worked out the Simon, it's going to be receptible to this um, time pressure technique. So Simon gets the time pressure technique because he's at that point where he's ready. As motivation comes in waves, knowing when someone is at that point with enough motivation to take the bait and then triggering them with something, that's magic. We're not far away from the point where this kind of AI is going to be open for everyone. Um, you know, it's, it's already there. Technology is already there. People are already using it. And it, that scares me because I don't want powerful marketing. I want um, ineffective marketing so I can have more choice. Powerful marketing means no choice. That's amazing. I just want to dial in a couple of things. Uh, Lizzie, uh, Lizzie's just asked a question. What about when you're a buyer? This is great timing. Uh, what about when you're a buyer that likes to research? Some make, some make decisions quickly. Others will be turned off by the pressure of time. So that that notion of choice, again, playing in there. Some people don't want a choice. They want to be told, I guess, Chris. And some people don't. What do you say? So, the question for me or for panel? Yeah, well, no, I was pointing at you because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, as, as, uh, as the academic in the room, that you might uh, have a quicker yeah, decision. My, for my a sins. Quick, a quick, yeah, um, indeed. I'm sorry to. Uh, but it goes back to what Rachel was saying earlier on about um, giving companies the personality of people. You know, if you've got a company that's constantly showing you they care yeah. and showing they respond and you know it's a person behind that. It's not just a big conglomerate. It's actually, it's Mike. And Mike's got family and kids um, and all these qualities. Then you're going to have a bit of stretch on that. Now, you're, I don't know, what are, you, what are you buying? You're buying um, you're buying some shaving stuff, okay? So maybe you spend two quid extra because you're buying from Mike at that store and you really like the way it's done. Now you're going to have that stretch. So you know, some people always go for the bargain basement. Some people will go for that brand thing that Rachel was talking about. I think also you, you need to create content for every stage of the buying process, you know, for, for people that like to research, you, you might be interested in, you know, um, finding a hotel in Manchester. So you create content that talks about the best places to stay in Manchester for that stage of the process. Mm. Then there's another piece of content for the, um, for the, the contemplation stage. And then, you know, that, that buying stage is when you might go onto the website and then there's the time pressure element. So I think you can, you need to nurture clients through different stages of the process and they require different approaches. Mm. See, now I've paused because I'm sure someone else was going to jump in. And nobody <laughs> jumped in. So we had an awful pause. Um, I, I, I think we're going to run out of time. Clearly this discussion, uh, we've scratched the tip of the iceberg, I think. Um, I think there's a massive interplay between uh, logic and emotion more than I realised. I think there's an even bigger interplay with fear um, and pressure and everything else. But I, I do, if I take away one thing from this, it's that uh, it's possible to be too nice. It's possible to sell uh, too gently. It's super important to be creative to shore up everything you're doing, to make sure, uh, you know, one thing that Chris said that I, I'm going to hear in my dreams for months, beauty is a function. Oh my God, that that is powerful because it really is a function. Um, and hopefully everyone listening uh, will take that away. Go and look at your websites and ask yourself, are they beautiful? Uh, and, and are the words beautiful? Are the graphics beautiful? Uh, is the website itself beautiful in its usability? If it's not, uh, I guarantee it's costing you money. Uh, if it is beautiful, it's probably lowering your cost of sales, which is why we're all here. Um, if anybody needs any help, got an amazing array of experts in this room uh, who I'm sure 
uh, find them on LinkedIn, ask them more questions. I'm sure they'll share and they'll help if they can. Uh, to the panel, Rachel, thank you for letting me interrupt you multiple times. Adam, thank you for letting me interrupt you multiple times. Simon, I barely interrupted you, but I've interrupted you many times over the years. And Chris, uh, having only just met you, I feel like I didn't interrupt you enough. Um, but to uh, all of you, thank you for being here. Next month, before we all go, uh, let me just um, point out that the next webinar, I had it already, and now that screen is gone. Uh, it is October the 12th, and we have a fantastic Carl Reader, uh, a fantastic author, uh, ex-accountant, business owner, entrepreneur. Um, it's going to be very, very fascinating. Uh, so if you want to be uh, uh, at that webinar as well, just go to marketingquickwins.com, put your name and address in, and we'll make sure you get the alerts. Uh, the recording will be live in a few days. That's it from me. Say goodbye, panel. Goodbye. Goodbye, panel. Bye. Bye everybody. Nicely done. See you all later. Take care.